Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I'm Mark Honigsbaum. And I'm Hannah Maudsley. We're the Disease Detectives, and in the first series of Going Viral, we're investigating the 1918 Spanish influenza. It was one of the most devastating pandemics in history, and it happened 100 years ago. So it feels like now is a good time to interrogate everything about it. The science, the history, even the books and works of art it inspired. Last time we heard about Professor John Oxford's attempt to recover the Spanish flu virus by digging up the body of Sir Mark Sykes. The diggers will have got down and exposed the coffin and our team would then take the lid off, that's the potentially infectious part, move the lid back and then actually do the clinical sampling. What John Oxford didn't know when he began his hunt for the virus is that another researcher in the United States was thinking along the same lines. And suddenly we opened up science one day and it was like a, a star appearing in the firmament. And that star was Jeffrey Tumberberger. Today we're going to hear how Jeffrey and a team of scientists brought the deadly flu virus back to life. I would stay out of everybody's way and make sure that I didn't have any kind of incident with the 1918 virus. Episode 2 Resurrecting the Killer. I'm Jeffrey Taubenberger. What is your full title? Well, that's complicated. Let's see. I am chief of the viral pathogenesis and evolution section and deputy chief of laboratory of infectious diseases at the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, National Institutes of Health. Wow. <laughs> I'm glad you said that and not me. <laughs> so it was an unusually hot day in D.C. when I met Jeffrey. The mercury hit 82 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a record for D.C. in winter. Jeffrey's interest in the Spanish flu began in 1993 when he was recruited to join the Armed Forces Institute for Pathology in Washington, D.C. So the AFIP is part of the Walter Reed Medical Center. It was established, actually, by a Civil War general. And the idea was to make it a place where they studied diseases of the battlefield. The institute has all this autopsy material, and they're kept on slides, and the tissue is embedded in paraffin wax to preserve it. And the interesting thing is the collection encompasses every conflict that American troops have been involved in, including, most critically, the First World War. As head of the Molecular Pathology Division, one of Jeffrey's tasks was to find a suitable scientific project for their vast collection of pathology slides. We had a sort of a brainstorming session of what could we do that would be interesting, and the thought that came out of it was that if we were to try to find cases of people who died of the 1918 flu, perhaps we could learn something about this really remarkable and horrible outbreak. And so it turns out that there were about 100 or so U.S. soldiers who died of influenza whose autopsy tissue material was transferred for permanent storage to my institute after World War I, and that had been sitting in the warehouse. And so in 1995 and 6, when we started this project, we were able to recover these tissues. About 70 or so of those cases still had tissues, not just the glass slides. And so we started to try to extract the genetic material from that material. So Jeff and his team started this incredibly painstaking process of sequencing the 1918 virus from these pathology slides. The chemical structure of DNA was identified back in 1953. 
but it was only in 1983 that an American chemist worked out how to amplify, or make more of in other words, strands of DNA using a technique called polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. Think of it as a sort of a molecular photocopy machine. You can start with one small piece of DNA and make millions and millions of copies of it so that you have enough to do something with it, to see it, to manipulate it, in a sense. It was using this method that in 1993, a member of Jeffrey's lab pioneered a technique for amplifying ribonucleic acid, RNA, from animal cells infected with RNA viruses, including flu viruses like the ones in Jeff's pathology samples. The amount of influenza RNA present in these samples was at the sort of femtomolar to atomolar amount, which is a technical term, but it's a zero point and then either 18 or 21 zeros before you get to the amount of RNA there. You can't even comprehend what a tiny amount of material is present in there. So it was a very laborious process, and many people in the Institute suggested, you know, you've spent enough time and wasted enough money on this ridiculous project, and you should probably stop. Is he going to continue? What did his superiors think? Oh, this is the army. This is the American army. What did they think? They would say, Jeff, how are you getting on? And they would say, well, no, no, I haven't got you to yet. And then how long are they going to go on financing this? So it's actually two of Jeff's female colleagues, Anne Craft and Anne Reed, who did a lot of the painstaking lab work behind these revelations. And it's important to acknowledge their contribution. It was more than a year's effort before we found a positive case. And we didn't know if that's because our techniques to try to find and fish out fragments of the virus were not good enough or the material wasn't positive. But we kept going because it was so interesting. What I will give to Jeffrey, he had the patience and the durability not to give up. Then we finally found a case of a soldier that died in Camp Jackson of South Carolina on September 22nd. Roscoe uh, Vaughan, I believe. It is Roscoe Vaughan. I have always been reluctant to mention his name sort of out of respect, but as I understand it, there are no legal or ethical implications to not using the name. So Roscoe Vaughan was 21 when he died on the 26th of September 1918. Like many soldiers who died in the pandemic, he was fit and well-nourished. Doctors remarked on how well-padded he was. But when they opened up his chest cavity, they were shocked to see blood seeping from the surface of his left lung and the air sacs clogged with fluids. We did find a second AFIP-positive case, Private James Downs a soldier who died eerily on the very same day in Camp Upton on Long Island, New York, and began to sequence that. James Downs was 30 years old, so nine years older than Vaughan, but he was a strapping chap. He stood six feet tall and weighed 140 pounds. Downs had been admitted to hospital with a raging temperature of 104 degrees, and soon after his skin turned blue, then dark purple, from this condition known as cyanosis, and that was a sure sign of imminent death. So what did Jeff and Anne discover from these cases? So we had some information. It looked like it was the ancestor to both human and swine viruses. It had avian-like features, but was at the root of the human and swine sort of family tree. But we still needed more material to finish sequencing the genome. We decided 
that uh, we had enough material, even though we hadn't completed the genome, that we would make an initial publication announcement, in a sense what I called in the lab sort of a birth announcement, that the sequencing of the 1918 virus was happening, and that publication ended up being published in March in 1997 in Science Magazine, but it took us a while to get this initial paper published. I was amazed when Jeff told me that. I mean, both these prestigious scientific journals, Science and Nature, didn't even bother to send Jeff's paper out to review. That's how little known he was in the field of influenza research. Eventually, however, other influenza researchers got to hear about it through word of mouth, and science agreed to reevaluate the paper. When it was finally published in March 1997, a year after Jeff originally submitted it, everything changed. There was an enormous amount of media interest, and it was crazy. It was exhilarating, exhausting, overwhelming, bewildering. Most scientists, even if they become prominent in their field, are obviously not getting much media attention. Uh, looking back on this now, I was 35 years old and a kid and had no idea what the heck I was doing. But one of the significant things that came out of that was becoming in contact with Johan Holten. So Johan Holten is a retired Swedish pathologist now based in San Francisco. He's in his 90s and he's not giving interviews any longer. But he was once described as the Indiana Jones of the scientific set. He, as a medical student, in the late 1940s, conceived of an idea to find the source of the 1918 virus, to isolate the virus and culture it. He got the idea that maybe you could isolate the virus from bodies buried in permafrost. He had, by accident, become involved in an archaeological expedition in Alaska the summer before and heard about these small villages on the Seward Peninsula of Alaska in which there were big flu outbreaks and there were mass graves. He and his advisors went up and got permission and did an exhumation in 1951, but were unable to recover live virus, which in retrospect is probably a good idea. There was no biological containment in 1951. I don't know that they had thought through what would have happened had they recovered the virus, but they did not. He got frustrated with this idea, abandoned the PhD part of his program, finished his medical studies, became a pathologist, had retired, was living in San Francisco, was in his mid-70s when he wrote me in 1997 and said, I know literally where the bodies are and that I still have contacts with people in Brevik Mission, Alaska, and I could probably go back and do another exhumation if you would like additional material. Ah, so this place that Hulton's referring to is a place so isolated that the people there had basically no immunity to the flu and so when the virus arrived it was almost like it fell on virgin soil. Yeah that's right so I mean virgin soil epidemic as you'll know that phrase was coined by the environmental historian Alfred Crosby and he originally used it in the context of how European colonists the people who discovered the Americas introduced old world diseases to which the indigenous inhabitants of North and South America had no immunity it also can be applied to the devastating impact that flu had on isolated communities in 1918. On the coast of the Seward Peninsula of Alaska was a small Inuit village and a flu outbreak occurred in November 1918 and the estimates are that at least 80% of the adult population of this community died, 72 people, 
and these bodies were buried in a long mass grave in permafrost on a bluff right overlooking the beach with two crosses on either end. And that's where he had done this exhumation in 1951, and he thought that we could get permission to do it again. I was thinking in my mind, we'd write a proposal, write an NIH grant in two years, and then maybe we'd get funding. And he said, I can't leave this week, but I could go on Tuesday. <laughs> he ended up going in August 1997 up to Brevik Mission and presented the idea to the village council. And one lady who was one of the leaders of the community whose grandparents had both died in 1918, and she remembered him from the 1951 exhumation and understood the importance of this project and so agreed. He was able to expose four bodies and three of them were just skeletal remains, even though they were six feet in the ice. If you think of the word permafrost, you get the sense that it is continuously frozen, which is actually not true. What turns out is that it's mostly frozen, but that it fluctuates from about minus 10 Celsius to about plus 10 Celsius through the freezing point all the time, which is actually, when you think about it, the worst possible way to preserve biological material because ice crystals form and puncture the membranes of cells and break everything open. So three of the bodies were damaged, but what about the fourth? This still had very well-preserved tissue that Johan labeled Lucy. It is Johann's estimation that this was an obese woman with a very large amount of subcutaneous fat and that this, in a sense, insulated the internal organs in a way that other thinner corpses were not so well preserved. So he took large pieces of lung, he put some in formaldehyde, he put some in alcohol, he put some in chemicals that we typically use to extract nucleic acids and then ship them via three different mail courier systems so that if the package got lost, some of the material would make it to my lab. That is amazing to think in those days you could post the virus through the mail. Yeah, it probably wouldn't happen today. Everything made it to my lab, but he was very, very careful about this. But even after they received the material, there was no guarantee that Jeff and Anne Reed would be able to complete their sequence. It turns out that when you look at the genetic material of the virus from the Alaska tissue, it's in much worse shape than the fixed tissue from the autopsies. It's just that there's much more of it. But it was in even teenier tiny fragments than what was in our fixed autopsy cases. Between Johann's trip and Jeffrey's 1997 paper, John Oxford had made a similar expedition to Spitsbergen in search of virus from victims buried in the permafrost there. But unfortunately, those bodies were buried in shallow graves and no usable material was recovered. Luckily, Jeffrey had succeeded, though. We ended up having the full sequence of the hemagglutinin gene from the three cases, the two AFIP soldiers and the Alaska Inuit case, published in 1999. As we were sequencing the virus, the original idea that we would look at sequences and, and find mutations that were unique, that were not present in other viruses that might give us clues as to why the 1918 virus was so virulent, were modified to the idea that it might be possible now to actually make viruses that contained one or more 1918 genes and maybe ultimately all of the 1918 genes and study them carefully in the laboratory in animal models and in tissue culture and so on. So this was a game changer. Now, they weren't merely sequencing the virus, they were actually proposing to bring it back to life. 
Yeah, and that's where Peter Palese came in. My name is Peter Palese. I am chair of microbiology. He's an Austrian microbiologist. The ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai here in Manhattan in New York City. I have been studying this virus in all its beauty for several decades, and I find it still very interesting, and I'm excited coming to work and working on it. Okay, so the technique that Peter Palazzi is famous for is called reverse genetics. Now, you don't really need to know what that is, but what you do need to understand is that unlike other RNA viruses, influenza is negative-stranded virus. That means that once it's been purified in the lab, it doesn't infect and grow easily in animal cells. And so one has to provide additional components in order to make an infectious virus. Basically, Palazzi's technique enabled flu researchers to convert the virus into positive-stranded RNA using plasmids or bits of DNA that have been added to it. These could then be inserted into animal cells for replication. We use the genetic information of the RNA of influenza viruses and transcribe it back into DNA. And then from that changed DNA, we can then go into making in the laboratory the whole virus. So essentially, using Palazzi's technique, scientists would be bringing the virus back to life. It was like a dinosaur's footprint, the RNA. From that footprint, you could possibly reconstruct the virus. Now, not surprisingly, the powers that be were a little bit nervous about this, but eventually, in 2005, they gave approval for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta to conduct the study. It was decided that it was just going to be one person at the CDC, myself, that was going to reconstruct the entire 1918 virus. So this is Dr. Terence Tumpy who got this amazing job. We felt like it was important to study one of the worst pandemics known to man, to understand why it was so lethal, why did it transmit so efficiently from human to human, to help us better understand other pandemics that may come. The bottom line is that once you have the sequence information that was provided by Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberger, we were then able to piece together the different virus genes and then ultimately inject, so to speak, those virus genes into a cell. And once it's inside the cell, then the virus genes know what to do and they start to make virus particles. Three days later, I could start to see that we had what we referred to as cytopathic effect or CPE. And that tells us that there's a virus in the culture that's replicating, that's killing the cells. And then once you see that, then you can collect the virus from the cultures and then make multiple aliquots of it and then study it from there. The whole process with putting it into animals and putting it into cells only took a couple months and I got the data and wrote it up and... I bet your wife uh, and children probably relieved at that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um... I think they, they felt like it was a safe environment to work under. And I also tried to work under non-working hours, so I wasn't working with other people in the laboratory. But I tried to work with the 1918 virus after 5 o'clock 
just so I would stay out of everybody's way and make sure that I didn't have any kind of incident with the 1918 buyers. You dread to think what sort of incident he's thinking of that could have happened. You end up thinking about Hollywood blockbuster zombie movies here. So I'm dying to know what he found out. We found that the 1918 virus was a unique virus in that it replicated very efficiently, better than what we had seen with other viruses in human airway cells. And it was highly lethal in mice and it was also lethal in ferrets. So it is clearly an innately virulent virus in a number of mammalian systems. The 1918 virus sequence has a number of bird flu-like characteristics. It is really very avian-like in a number of ways, and it has this unique kind of pathogenicity. We decided that it was important to take it one step further and actually start to mix and match different virus genes to understand which ones are the most important, which ones cause the most disease in mammals. And we just did a simple series of experiments where we just took each of the 1918 virus genes in a single form and added to a seasonal virus and asked the question, which of the eight virus gene segments of the 1918 virus are important? And it appointed to the hemagglutinin or the HA to be the most important. And then also we identified that one of the polymerase proteins to be important for the ability of the virus to replicate so well, to make more copies of itself. The other very important finding was that we made a vaccine against the 1918 virus and found we could protect 100% of of the mice, which were then infected with the 1918 virus. And that's very important because this was not a sort of outlandish creature which could not be treated if something would happen. This virus is amenable to protection by vaccines. It was more virulent than any other influenza virus, but this was also under conditions where there were no antibiotics available. So any super infections by bacteria caused really quite a lot of the problems in the 1918 pandemic. All of that has been very fruitful in terms of expanding our understanding of how influenza viruses do these things and to help make predictions for the future, but still many unanswered questions remain. While what we can understand in mice and ferrets and monkeys has helped us a lot, it still doesn't translate exactly to what happened to people in 1918, and there are still a number of unanswered questions even after 20 years of intensive work. So I think that's really interesting that, you know, Jeffrey, even after all this research, has still got so many questions about what happened in 1918. And it wasn't enough, or it's not enough to recreate the virus, bring it back to life. To understand what happened in 1918, you have to also know how this virus interacted with people's immune systems. Having said that, we shouldn't underestimate this achievement. I mean, it really was a huge breakthrough. And before ending our interview, Jeffrey reminded me of something that Alfred Crosby, the historian, had written 40 years ago. He has a phrase in his book at the end, in the epilogue, that the only way to find the 1918 virus would be to find some kind of miraculous time capsule. It has been the dream of scientists working on influenza for over half a century to somehow obtain specimens of the virus of Spanish influenza. But only something as unlikely as a time capsule could provide them. When we finally found a positive case and were generating some sequence, I emailed him to say that we found the time capsule and it was a tiny piece of preserved lung tissue in our warehouse. 
Crosby responded, saying it was amazing that Jeffrey had found the clues to the flu in this manner. Afterwards, they became firm friends. But sadly, Alfred Crosby died in April 2018, almost 100 years to the month that the first reports of the flu emerged in Spain. Next time, we visit Etaples in northern France with Professor John Oxford to try to figure out where the Spanish flu came from. On this spot, maybe exactly where we're speaking, something came up which in the end would spread around the world and kill 100 million people. And we'll hear more about the condition that doctors at the time referred to as the Blue Death. When the first soldiers started dying of flu, they were horrified at what they were seeing, and one of them said, I've only ever seen this once before, and that was in soldiers being poisoned by mustard gas. Going Viral is presented by me, Mark Honigsbaum. And me, Hannah Maudsley. Please do subscribe to our series so you don't miss an episode. And we'd love you to rate us too. Follow us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod. Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. And the series is supported by the Wellcome Trust. <laughs>